My name is Alex Jarnot. I'm a PhD student at UC Irvine, um, and I work in the Roland Blake lab. And a little bit of uh, what I do there is um, I study, I'm an atmospheric chemist, so I study biomass burning, wildfires, agricultural fires, and I study the um, chemistry that occurs in the atmosphere from the airborne part of these emissions. So I study basically smoke and then how that smoke um, interacts with things like um, urban pollution. And I hope that my work will kind of help unravel some of the mysteries that we have with um, chemistry in the atmosphere and how that relates to impacts on human health and specifically climate change. Um, so thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life. folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Joining me today, we have Alex Jarnot. He is a researcher at the University of California, Irvine, in the Department of Chemistry. You come from a very prestigious lab, from what I understand, the Roland Blake Lab. Yes, yeah, that's correct. Do you want me to go into that a little hey, bit? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah sure. Um, so yeah, so I come from the Roland Blake Lab. Um, the, As my PI would say, the more famous part of that name is the Roland Lab, because uh, Frederick Sherwood Roland, or as we called him, Sherry, won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1995 for discovering that um, CFCs actually deplete the ozone layer. So that's kind of our big claim to fame um, in the world of atmospheric chemistry. And um, so his grad student, Don Blake, or his postdoc, Don Blake, actually kind of picked up the lab after he retired. And so now we call it the Roland Blake Lab. Very good. And um, we know of each other because um, you're a writer on the Lowdown on Science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's correct. We uh, both worked together on that, yep. but never really had the opportunity to have a proper sit-down chat, so I'm very glad you're here. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me, man. So let's start off, as we always do. Could you tell us about the specifics of your work? What do you do in the Roland Blake Lab? Absolutely. So my specific, um, I guess, field of expertise in the lab is um, studying the impacts of wildfire smoke in... Um, and its interactions with urban pollution. So we study specifically in the lab um, things called VOCs or volatile organic compounds. We don't study any of the um, particulate matter that you might hear about in the news. Um, so I study, like I said, I study specifically gases um, and a lot of gases and interesting gases are given off during burning um, and smoke from wildfires or agricultural fires that might be intentionally set on fire. Um, and when the smoke actually comes into contact with pollution from, you know, a big city it can actually make it even worse in a lot of ways. And so I study kind of how that happens um, because it's not very well known because um, it's, you know, super complex chemistry and I'm not claiming to know it all, but I'm just hoping to kind of understand its effects a little bit better because these fires long after they've died out 
often will leave traces in the air, you know, and then we breathe that in and then it's harmful for us. It's harmful for the climate. So um, it's important to know about this sort of stuff. Could you give us an example of sort of the chemistry that might happen because of, um, well, because, you know, California, we have a lot of wildfires around here. Yeah. And uh, there's already a lot of pollution, so there must be a lot going on. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, So a lot of these um, fires, you know, they'll kick up this like really fresh stuff and fresh as in like stuff that hasn't been aged is what we call it in the air. So as gases hang around in the atmosphere, they get exposed to sunlight, they get exposed to other chemicals that will oxidize them. And over time, these um, kind of fresh compounds will age into these much bigger, heavier oxidized compounds. And when enough of these get together, they'll start to stick together and clump up. And that's where you get your particulate matter or airborne particles from. And those are the ones that we worry about a lot for um, human health because, you know, when you breathe them in, they get stuck in your lungs a lot of the time and they can carry harmful um, gases like benzene, formaldehyde, other sorts of things like that. Those are the big, big names that we see a lot. Um, So it's just kind of understanding how gas, the fresh stuff interacts with itself and then how it interacts with the sun, uh, you know, radiation from the sun and also interacts with other compounds that might already be in the air or might be coming from um, urban pollution like NOx or ozone. You mentioned you guys study specifically gases and not the particulate matter. Is that because the different equipment that's involved or? Yeah. um, And that kind of goes back to uh, the way the the lab started was um, Sherry Rowland was, um, he was a gas, he started as a nuclear guy, but then he got more into kind of a gas chromatography guy. And our lab is a little bit antiquated, and that's all that we really use is gas chromatography. That being said, we have a really powerful gas chromatography system. So it's kind of one of those, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of things. So yeah, we are limited in a way by the fact that we only use kind of one instrumental technique, which is GC or gas chromatography. Um, So we can't look at particles or anything like that also because of the way that we sample. So we take our samples in stainless steel canisters that are under vacuum. And then when we take them out into the field, we'll open them up and that sucks in air and then we'll close them and then ship them back to the lab. Now, when that happens, anything that's heavy or sticky is gonna kind of get stuck to the walls of the container. Um, So we wouldn't be able to see it anyway, even if we could measure it. So um, that's kind of why we stick to gases mostly. Um, And like I said, even though I say we're limited, we're not really limited in that we can look at hundreds of different types of gases. And that's not something that you see every day in your average analytical lab. What's afforded by that kind of power of resolving oh, the different yeah. gases in something? That's a, that's a great question. So um, we get really high sensitivity um, and pretty good accuracy, or really good accuracy, but the sensitivity is kind of the big one. So one of the analogies that I like to make is that we're more sensitive than like a great white shark is with its nose. So a great white shark can detect blood in part per million range, sometimes down to low parts per billion. We can detect certain gases down to less than a part per trillion. So to put that in perspective, if you took a packet of sugar, took one grain of that packet of sugar, smashed that up, and then took one grain of that dropped it in an Olympic sized swimming pool, we could detect that sugar. So that's one that's less than a part per trillion. So 
we can detect certain gases that would be pretty much invisible to most other uh, cap- you know, analytical capabilities. So if somebody is emitting something, you know, somewhere in Asia, we can pick it up on the California coast, you know, a couple of days later in some cases. Um, so we can really kind of study the nitty gritty that um, we might not be able to see if we use the different type of technique or if we had less of an analytical capability than we do. So that last statement does answer my question that I was going to have. Like, so I guess um, if something is down to like the parts per trillion, does it really affect human health? But I guess you're saying that, well, we can track where it came from now because from far away. Yeah. So yeah, A, we can track where it came from in a lot of cases using some kind of, um, you know, special ways that we can, you know, look at the data and track air masses and things like that. But the other thing is that, you know, exactly what you said, does it even matter if we can, you know, if we're seeing such small amounts, um, some of these like chlorinated compounds like CFCs, um, even a small amount up in the atmosphere can do a lot of damage in a lot of cases. So like, um, my example, CFCs, um, one chlorine molecule or sorry, one chlorine radical. So a single chlorine atom radical can catalytically destroy millions of molecules of ozone, which is, you know, how the ozone hole formed in the first place. It's just, you know, a couple of sprays of an old aerosol can can really do some damage to the atmosphere. So, and that's just one example, but yeah, it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of why we care so much about this. So the equipment's pretty sensitive, I imagine, and um, it takes a lot of maintenance. Or, yeah, yeah, it takes going? a <laughs> yeah, it take I guess a fair amount of upkeep. Um, not so much maintenance on the equipment itself, but more of more of like foresight. You know what I mean? So we use, you know, we have to use a lot of vacuums and a lot of pumps to kind of keep everything under control. But the issue is because our stuff is so sensitive. Um, any bit of like oil coming from the pump exhaust or anything that makes its way into the the um, the uh, you know the, the instrument or anything we'll just completely trash it you know with with our sensitivities. The other thing is um, when we when using GC, you have to use a carrier gas, and now that carrier gas when we're looking at things down in the part per trillion level has to be incredibly pure. It has has to be almost a hundred percent pure or as close to it as possible. Now, when you buy, say, nitrogen carrier gas, a lot of the time we buy ultra high purity, which is like 99.99, there might be another nine on there, you know, percent purity. Um, And that's too dirty for us to use. So we actually have to purify it again by running it through um, a a loop cooled in liquid nitrogen. And so as the gas runs through that, anything that's heavier than N2 is going to get stuck to these glass beads that are chilled to liquid nitrogen temperatures um so that's kind of where the upkeep comes in is we have to we have these big vats of liquid nitrogen that we're running exhaust lines and liquid night you know nitrogen and everything to through um and so those will evaporate over the course of the day and that's really where the upkeep comes in is someone has to come in every single day you know holidays weekends birthdays everything you know oh not birthdays we have enough people to cover but you know thank goodness i suppose uh, yeah, yeah yeah for sure yeah but you know someone has to be in there every day to top them off which isn't too long but you know it takes it takes a fair bit is that something where there's any hope for automation uh 
like I said, you know, Don's a little bit old school. My PI, Don Blake, is a little bit old school in that, you know, like I said earlier, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I'm sure there's room for automation, but, you know, if it works having one person come in for an hour and fill them up on the weekend, you know, it's not a big deal. And usually we don't mind. There's usually someone around um, and, you know, somebody's in lab enough that it usually gets done. So it's not like we're running off for a week at a time and being like, oh, crap, we have to get back and fill up the doers, you know. So, yeah, I, I think automation would it would be nice, but it would almost be a little bit overkill for our lab. But, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, certainly I think with equipment that sensitive, perhaps that attitude is perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> you mess with it, who knows what you'll do. Yeah. If any stray bit of, you know, even exhaust will kill it, and I, I can imagine that being problematic. Yeah. What are the sort of specific discoveries that you've been responsible for? Discoveries that I've been responsible for? Um, shoot. Nothing nothing yet so i'm only starting my third year and i really only got the data that i'm really looking at right now um just last year so last almost exactly a year ago actually less than a year ago so last year i was part of this campaign called weekend which has a really long um acronym but it's like western wildfire basically a western wildfire experiment um and then this year i was part of a campaign called fire x aq which is fire something fire experiment air quality um but basically they're very similar experiments in that they started in boise and then we would fly on our dc-8 or c-130 aircraft science laboratory um, around the western u.s and basically sample wildfires and it takes about you know six months to a year after the fact you know after the experiment to kind of get all of the finalized data and once that's out, I can start looking at it. So um, I've only really recently kind of had the full data set to look at. And I, so I haven't had too much time to really find anything really crazy. The most interesting thing, I think, was I found some really high isopentane to n-pentane ratios out in the middle of nowhere. And that's only interesting because isopentane is most often found in high quantities in kind of urban environments. And we'll take that ratio to n-pentane, and by looking at that ratio, you can kind of specify where it's coming from. Um, and usually, like I said, we usually see really high ratios near urban settings, but this was kind of out in the middle of nowhere in the woods, so it was kind of interesting. Is that a product of combustion? Um, not quite. It's actually just before the combustion. So usually you see it in gasoline because gasoline through the refining process is ah. enriched in isopentane. Uh, I, I'm not sure of the exact chemistry there. I haven't looked at it yet, but um, yeah, apparently isopentane is enriched in gasoline. So if you're around an urban center, there's a lot of gasoline evaporation. There might be some chemical, you know, petrochemical processing there. So um, that's usually where you, that's why you see it there. And I think the reason we found it out in the middle of nowhere in the woods is because there was a, lumber camp nearby and it seemed as if the the um, treating of the wood was done using biodiesel as a solvent and so it looked from satellite imagery and everything that they might be treating the wood carrying the kind of creosote and other treatment chemicals into the wood using biodiesel and then leaving it outside to evaporate and that might be kind of why we're seeing it but i'm not totally sure you know 
That's just my best guess from there. It might also just be that we got a whiff of something downwind or something like that, but I'm not sure. We'll see. <laughs> Sounds kind of a lot like uh, detective work. Yeah, it, it can be in some cases. Um, we do a little bit of espionage, I guess you could say, in some cases. Um, because our cans, we can kind of sample anywhere because we use canisters. The canisters are small enough they can fit in your backpack, they can fit in a suitcase. Um, so in some cases, we'll actually kind of sneak up to the side of like a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. <laughs> we can kind of sneak up to um, like an oil field or maybe a refinery or a, a vineyard in some cases um, and kind of poke our hands over the fence, take a sample and, and run, you know, and um, kind of see where these um, things what we call actually, oh shoot, what are they called? Um, I'm forgetting the exact term, but these um, emissions that are kind of, you know, criminal emissions i guess you could say we can regulated of, stuff that they're yeah, not supposed to be putting exactly out. Okay. yeah so if a vineyard has too much ethanol coming out and let's say that there's a regulation on how much ethanol they can put out and they're saying oh yeah we're we're only measuring this much but that's their inside guys measuring it you know we come along we can really see exactly what they're measuring you know or what they're emitting there so <laughs> there's been a couple times we've we've not done anything illegal you know but come you know come a little sketchy okay you gotta tell us a story (laughs) (laughs) there was this one time we were in uh, bakersfield and you know bakersfield has a lot of like oil derricks and oil fields and i remember we were was there for like a a group project and we were kind of driving along and kind of down these back roads that we weren't technically not supposed to be on but we were definitely getting some nasty looks from the guys that were around there and then we got out and we're kind of walking down this road and uh yeah, there were like people starting to show up, and we we're like, "All right, we should probably leave now." <laughs> we got our sample; we can go. Um, another fun time was we we do these um, kind of quarterly trips all around the Pacific Rim to measure emissions coming across the Pacific, so we can see kind of where they start and where they end, you know, from the trade winds. And one of the trips that I went on was uh, to Baja, Mexico, which is a lot of fun, and. Uh, it's like five in the morning and I'm in the middle of nowhere, Baja, Mexico, you know, um, and I'm with my friend and we're in this terrible little car and we're driving down in the middle of nowhere and we pass a control check, you know, one of the federalis, you know, checkpoints that are dotted along the way. And I'm sure they weren't expecting to see me, you know, there at like six in the morning at that time, you know, driving past and I, I pull up and the guy's like smiling and he's like, oh, I don't us. And I... In you know my sleep deprived mind, I was like, oh yeah, just keep going. And I was like, oh okay. So I just drove through, and I didn't realize till halfway down the road that he was asking where I was going. You know, not you can keep going. And I was like, oh, he's gonna be really mad when I come back this way. <laughs> so we go down, we get stuck in the sand. It's a long story, but we end up getting our sample and we're coming back. And um, I have the samples in the trunk in my duffel bag with all my stuff. And this time he stops me like for good. And he's like, all right, get out of the car. And I was like, oh shit, I'm going to get, I'm going to get locked in a Mexican prison. <laughs> you know, and there's like guys with the machine guns standing around and the ball, you know, the face is all covered. And I'm like, oh geez, this is bad. So I get out and he's like, all right, pop your trunk. And I pop the trunk and he immediately doesn't even ask. He just goes for the duffel bag, opens it up and sitting right there are my canisters. And I was like, this looks like drugs. I'm going to get arrested. <laughs> you know? But then he digs past them and grabs a baggie that I have and pulls it out. And he's like, 
KSA store, what is this? What is this? And I was like, oh shit, the seashells. Backstory, I like collecting seashells. <laughs> and Punta Baja, where we collect our sample, has some great beach with some great seashells. So I brought a Ziploc and collected a bunch of seashells. And I thought, oh my God, that might've been a protected area. And now I've just collected a bunch of <laughs> you know, seashells and stuff that maybe I wasn't supposed to be picking up. And now he's going to arrest me for that. And he just picks it up and he's like, oh, what is this? Then he kind of looks at it and he goes, oh, conchas. I was like, oh, yeah, seashells. And he, like, he starts laughing at me, puts it back, and he's like, all right, you can go. And, I, you know, and then all the other guards with the machine guns are laughing at me. And I'm like, oh, they probably think I'm like a little girl or something. <laughs> I can say in some unsavory stuff about me but yeah so. better than going to prison <laughs> oh yeah for sure i was oh i was so relieved i was like you can call me whatever you want i'm happy i'm leaving <laughs> so yeah that was a fun time got out with your sample so yeah like, <laughs> yeah i imagine there are a lot of entities out there that you know do any sort of uh natural resource exploitation that have yeah. a vested interest and in not Letting it be known what they're actually emitting, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, yeah. despite the regulation that goes on and stuff like that. So it seems like yeah. part of your job would be to be like, yeah, just wandering over, just like you know, take a sample and jet. Then, since you have like a spectacularly sensitive instrument, yeah, you yeah. don't have to be on site then to yeah. be. Yeah, okay. it's, it's nice. It takes you know. 15 to 20 seconds to take a sample so you know we can walk up and not do anything shady but you know we're not breaking the law or anything obviously but you know i mean you know these guys are definitely breaking the law in some cases and it's nice to kind of be able to you know kind of keep them in check a little bit you know walk up and you know take a sample go home analyze it and see oh yeah you're giving off 10 times the amount of benzene that you should be giving off or something you know and not to point your fingers or anything you know i haven't seen any of that yet on my watch luckily but um there have definitely been a couple of cases where people have been giving off stuff that they shouldn't have you know and so yeah this is this is kind of a nice way to like i said keep them in check and you know have some fun with it but yeah <laughs> actually it does sound like a lot of fun yeah. um <laughs> breaking the law but not really yeah <laughs> but also you're like good guys yeah we right. try to be yeah yeah, yeah. i think so, so. People in the podcast can see this, but my shirt is uh, says chaotic good. Oh yeah, yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely <laughs> didn't plan it to be this way. Just yeah, I just wore it. I'm like, oh, it's actually secretly chaotic very appropriate. Good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that, that definitely describes us. I would say. <laughs> so then, do regulatory agencies have often go to you guys to be like, hey, we got like a hot tip or something like that? How does that work? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we work with um. People like CARB, you know, California Air Resources Board, um, a lot, and um, maybe they're not comfortable with me name dropping. But you know, we do we do a lot of work with them. We do a lot of work with like NASA, um, NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research. Um, we'll do projects, not necessarily regulatory projects, um, or in some cases they are, but um, some cases it's just let's go see what wildfires are doing. Um, but in some cases, we actually are kind of interested in seeing what's being given off. So there was a time when we were going to go to Houston right after the big hurricane that happened down there. And there was people who were saying they were getting lightheaded. They were getting dizzy, headaches from, you know, this really nasty kind of chemical smells and things that were going on because the chemical factories got hit really hard. 
And so we were going to go down on our DC-8 and take some samples. And this was kind of right after Trump got brought in. And they said, no, we're going to have our own guys on the field, you know, do it. EPA, or not EPA, but um, whoever was there have their own companies do it. We are like, well, we don't mind. We're just going to fly over and take some samples. And they're like, no, 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 it's all good. So, yeah, um, that was kind of unfortunate. but um, Not suspicious at all? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying anything, but, you know, <laughs> that, that's what I happened. understand. <laughs> I, I understand. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, some, uh, like like I said, CARB, a lot of times in California, we'll, we'll do some things like, like I said, wineries. We'll look at wineries, um, you know urban centers where there might be some um of what they call community or um shoot what's the i can't think of the word but uh, kind of justice neighborhoods so underrepresented neighborhoods that are getting hit unequally hard by air quality so maybe these kind of poorer neighborhoods are right next to the highway or right next to kind of a a, a commercial or you know industrial setting and they're getting hit with all these kind of nasty chemicals or heavy metals um, and so they'll hire people like us people people like um, other groups that can measure like particulates or metals or things like that to kind of come in and kind of see what what's actually being given off and um, if people are being honest about their emissions what could reasonably be done if you find that people aren't being reasonable well honest about their emissions yeah um, so one of the things that they'll do you know fines are one thing that they'll do Um, there's a lot of different ways that they can be, you know, car, they being carb, um, or any other regulatory agency can do to kind of stop these. Um, one that I've heard of is I believe they give like incentives to people that are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. So if you are, you know, being honest and limiting your emissions, they'll kind of incentivize you. Um, I forget exactly how they do that. Um, but I know that, you know, if you go on their site, um, I think they have these ways or if you just like, you know, reach out to their PR person or something. Um, but yeah, if, if you, some cases they can even shut you down. There was one, if I remember correctly, it was like a electroplating company that was giving off like tons of, um, shoot, I think it was like cadmium or maybe it wasn't cadmium. It was some toxic metal that they should not have been given off. And, um, it was just like, dumping it into the air right next to one of these, um, you know, social, social justice neighborhoods. And, uh, yeah, I think they actually ended up shutting them down for a time because it was like toxic to a, the workers, you know, the poor guys that don't know what they're doing, breathing it in there. And also the people next door, you know, that were also having to breathe it in. So, um, yeah, there's a couple different things they can do. I don't want to talk too much about it cause I don't know the specifics and I don't want to say the wrong thing, but yeah, I think, um, you know, there's some ways they can kind of hit them back a little bit. Hate to belabor this point, but I also love to belabor this point because mm-hmm. I think it's kind of awesome. Yeah. Do you guys ever get people that are like backyard scientists that know how to devise one of these air, can- air canisters that just come in with like, I got a sample from a place. Don't ask how Here you guys go. Does that ever happen? Oh, <laughs> um, I definitely didn't break any laws getting this air from around this oil field, but you yeah, know, don't, um, don't ask. I don't think so. No, we definitely have some people that will ask to borrow our stuff. So our lab is a little bit different than most chemistry labs in that we can kind of get contracted out. 
So if somebody calls us up and is like, hey, I want to do a study, but I want to use your canisters because you do a really good job of looking at X, Y, and Z, we will say, yeah, sure, you know, we're going to charge you X amount per sample for prep, study, you know, analysis, results, all that good stuff. Um, and then we can send them however many they ask for. Um, but we usually they kind of know about us and we'll kind of know about them a little bit beforehand or they you know do a good job of saying like i'm on this grant i'm this is what i'm studying you know very kind of straightforward about it so i don't think we've had anybody come in with just like a random like you know like a jar of air or something <laughs> and say don't ask where it's from but i need i need the results from this um uh yeah i'm trying to think i don't think we've ever had anything like that but yeah yeah good question. <laughs> <laughs> so so i ask because you know knowing the current administration and there seems to be kind of like this they're definitely empowering the people who don't want out what they're putting what they're polluting exactly yeah. right yeah. and um and i wondered if there have been people angry enough about it that they just marched down, just turned the knob, collected some gas, and go. That seems like a very simple way yeah. to stick it to somebody good. Yeah, yeah, no, sure, for sure. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's possible. I think we do a fair enough, a good enough job on our own of doing that. We haven't had too many people. I don't think we've had anybody really come in and say, like, I need to know what this guy's giving off. Give me a can. You know what I mean? <laughs> um yeah, I don't think we would. We we try not to to deal with that too much. Um, That's probably better yeah. for long term health. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, we we try and do a pretty good job of keeping up, keeping tabs of what's going on. You know, um, we do a every summer we we do a couple of projects where you know maybe a student that knows of our lab will come in and say, hey, I want to look at you know, methane being given off in dorm rooms around UCI. And we'll say, okay, here's so-and-so grad student. Here's a box of cans. Conduct your study and we'll do it. We'll help you out with that, you know. Um, and, or we'll, we have a, a NASA program that brings in 32 students or so, or I think it's 28 now, but um, a group of students will come in and they will actually go out and do their own sampling. So they do a pretty good job of covering oil fields, refineries, wineries nearby. Um, so we, we actually get a pretty good coverage year to year. Um, yeah, and we, we really don't have too many people that just come in and are like, I'm angry. I need to know what Long Beach refinery is doing, you know. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's pretty well monitored, surprisingly. I'm actually, after kind of learning how much there is out there, I was pretty surprised how well documented most things are, you know. Awesome. That is heartening to hear. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, you guys take samples on planes. Yes. So how yeah. does that work? Oh, that yeah. So that's that's our bread and butter. Um, <laughs> so I'll, it, it's a little bit of a long story. I'll try and make it a little bit short. But um, basically, when you're studying air, air moves really fast and really easily. And it can differ. differ actually, does can differ. It does differ drastically depending on the altitude that you're at and so the best way to study the air is to take a plane you know and um 
when you have so many people that want to study the air and they all kind of do something different, um, a lot of times these big agencies like NASA or NCAR or NSF will put together a big field campaign. Um, and these usually happen in the summers kind of every year, or it doesn't have to be the summer, but they come along fairly frequently um, where they'll get 20 or so odd groups together that all kind of study something slightly different um, and say, okay, here's our research aircraft, set it up, you know, everyone pick a seat and then we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to study these kind of mission science objectives. So for fire XAQ, that was, we're going to look at wildfires and we're going to, we're also going to look at agricultural fires, um, at this time frame, and this is how we're going to sample it. And we know what everyone wants to see. So we're going to try and hit these in such a way that everyone gets what they want. Um, that's just the most efficient way to do it. So these aircraft, um, depends on, they all have kind of different capabilities, but, um, the two that I've worked with are a DC eight which has been basically gutted completely um, and then had these giant metal racks stuck in kind of in every other seat. And then in between those are these really nice big leather kind of first class seats um, because you want to be a little bit comfortable when you're on these flights. Um, but yeah, and then people have to work really hard to fit their equipment or their instrument into these racks, right? Um, and so depending on what you study, you're given certain amount of rack space, um, for us, because we have to take physical samples, we have like, we have three or four racks and each one is double-sided. And then we have like two per row. So we have a lot of space on the plane, um, which is nice compared to some people that have a single seat and a single rack and they just have to kind of stay there. We get to get up and walk around. Um, yeah. And so. The motto on the plane is safety first, science second, comfort third. So the plane is a big DC-8 plane and it, a lot of the work that we do is kind of in the San Joaquin Valley and in the summer and at low altitudes, because that's kind of where the most interesting stuff is. So you can imagine that flying for six hours at a time on a really bumpy, hot plane, there's no air conditioning also because you know, you can't draw too much power and the instruments are already drawing a ton of power. So I'm sorry, I lied. There's a little bit of AC, but not a lot because we're all on there. All the instruments are generating heat. There's no insulation really. Cause we had to pull out a lot of it to make room. Um, there's no windows. Most of the time there's a couple, but most of them are taken up by ports to let air in. Um, so yeah, it gets a little uncomfortable, but, um, you kind of have to be a special type of person to, to work on it. But it's a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun. Yeah. So, yeah. So the way it works just real brief is we have these kind of tubes that are sticking out the side. And as you're flying along, they're set in such a way that they don't catch the um, exhaust of the plane. They're designed and, you know, placed very specifically. So they don't, um, air flows in, comes into the plane, runs through the instrument and then goes back out. And so for us, it's really easy because we can just kind of close the outlet, the line will start building pressure. And then we open up a can and we can pressurize a can, which is really nice. And we can just do that over and over and over. Um, other groups will kind of have a continuous measurement going. So as stuff flows along, they'll measure it for whatever they're looking for. And then it flows out. Um, and so, yeah. And so you just do six to 12 hours or so of sitting there doing that for however long 
we fly for. So because you get today, you're here with me. Yeah, yeah. On an interview, <laughs> I imagine you're not flying on a plane right now. No, no. So that's no. not. Is that something you do all the time? Is that something that happens? How often does that happen? So for me, it happens about once a year. Um, if if we're lucky and we get placed on one of these big campaigns, which we're pretty good about getting onto these you know campaigns because what we do is really unique compared to what most other people do. Um, so we're really fortunate in that. So that, yeah, happens for about a month. For me, happens for about a month out of the year. So last year for August, all of August, basically, I was in Idaho, um, which is where we were stationed, um, where the plane was flying out of. And so that day-to-day was a little bit nice in that um, for the instrument that I was helping out with for that, we only had one seat. And so we had, but there was two of us there. So the person who kind of knew what they were doing, um, she would go on and run the instrument for the flight for eight hours or so. And then I would stay on the ground. And while I'm on the ground, there's not much really to do because I can't work on the plane. You know, I can't work on the instrument. I can see the data coming in. So I'd usually look at that, but it was kind of relaxing to just kind of sit in the hotel and watch the data come in, kind of get some work done, all that. So that was a really nice day to day. Um, this summer was different in that I was working on my own instrument, um, collecting data. And so that was much more involved and a lot more intensive. <laughs> um, swapping out canister boxes and, you know, which are really heavy, like 60 pounds or something, getting them off the plane, get another six or seven back on the plane and it's hot and there's no AC cause they don't turn the AC on unless we're actually flying and we're on tarmac in summer in Idaho, which surprisingly gets really hot and uh yeah so that was pretty intense and then we'd get on a flight for six to eight hours land go to sleep at like 1 a.m wake up at eight or nine do it all again so that was day-to-day um for that but yeah regular day-to-day is a little bit a little bit more calm usually you know in lab doing lab stuff you know but yeah before we got sidetracked about uh, ninjaing air canisters yeah. in places that maybe, maybe we were supposed to be, but maybe, but um, yeah. <laughs> you talked about there was a study about um, experiments on fire, about fires being done. Yes. Right? So how does that work? And I imagine you guys aren't going around starting fires. What does that mean to have a fire experiment? Yeah. So fire experiment, they call it an experiment, but um, yeah, it's not like we're out starting the fires or anything um they did do a study where they actually had a fire lab in missoula um um there they were studying fires in kind of a more controlled setting so they would get some brush from the forest and kind of set it up in a specific way um, to try and replicate what they might see out in different areas of um, the u.s and also just to see kind of what individual species would look like and then so they would set them up and then they would set them on fire in this big room with an exhaust fan. And then they had their instruments kind of mounted in the exhaust, I believe. Um, and so they would set it on fire and then they could see how that smoke changed as it started, as it burned, and then as it smoldered. Um, so that was kind of our basis for this next experiment, which was the field. So we could compare what we saw in the lab. I say we, but it was really the, the Missoula Fire Lab people who really did all this work. Um, so then when we got to the fire XAQ campaign, we could see in situ real f- wildfires um, compared to what we saw in the lab. Um, so the goal of this was to study 
wildfires and agricultural fires. And now what's interesting that I didn't realize is a lot of these wildfires start as wildfires, but then end up being kind of prescribed burns. So um, it turns out that forest, you know, forestry services, um, in some cases, not all, obviously, you know, but um, some cases it's really good actually for the fire, you know, the forest to be on fire because there's certain pines that can only drop their seeds in a fire. Um, they might want to burn up some area for, um, you know, to get rid of brush or certain things. I'm, I don't know too much about it, um, but it was interesting. Some of the flights, we actually had helicopters nearby that were dropping almost actually ping pong balls full of napalm down onto the forest floor um, to help keep the fire going, to help kind of burn some of this leaf litter and tinder and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so in some cases, these are actually started. Um, for the agricultural fires, a lot of the times these were actually set on fire on purpose. Um, and so it was really nice because we could say, you know, this farmer is going to burn their crops, the, you know, their field at a certain time. We need to be there at that certain time, but we can also go in and kind of pick out and figure out exactly what they're burning. So maybe they're burning corn stalks and maybe another guy's burning soybean or something. And we can compare the smoke from the corn stalks to the soybean, which is really helpful, you know, because the wildfires usually we get there and we kind of have to piece together what it was before it burned because you know it's not like we have super high resolution specific satellite data for that one specific point in some cases we do but not all cases you know um so that's mostly a coincidence that they were just looking at that area or yeah it might be or you know um maybe they had a really good overpass that day that happened to be right over where the fire started and that's awesome because then we can really pick it out but um sometimes the satellites usually they do a great job but sometimes it has trouble deciphering between certain things. Um, and so for prescribed burns, that's really what helps us because we can go in and study the area before they burn it. And then once it's burning, kind of see what is coming up into the smoke and then trace that back to what we saw on the ground. Um, so yeah, so, uh, but wildfires are great, you know, cause, uh, sorry, I'll take that back. People are gonna take that out of context. <laughs> wildfires are not great. I apologize. Um, we're interested in looking at wildfires um, because most of the prescribed burns maybe don't get big enough to really loft it up and do some really interesting chemistry. So I hate to say it, but we almost get excited when really big fires crop up because they are the ones that are really special and do the really interesting science. Um, and it's, it's terrible to see the you know devastations happening on the ground um but you know and in a lot of cases we're very sensitive to you know if there's you know buildings or things that are being burned and that we we you know we're not like oh great we got awesome science because you know people are in some cases losing homes losing businesses things like that so we we try and be really you know sensitive and respectful to the people on the ground that are losing things to these fires when we're up there studying it and getting really great science you know but yeah so it's a bit of a touchy subject sometimes yeah that actually leads me to a question that i wanted to ask yeah. uh it reminds me of um the story behind hypothermia research okay if you're familiar uh, a lot of that hypothermia research and 
really the reason why today that we're able to save so many lives, people that have been suffering from hypothermia, mm-hmm. that have been lost in mountains or something like that, mm-hmm. um, they have such great outcomes now is because of the Nazis. Yeah. Nazis <laughs> were purposefully, you know, freezing people to death and just to look at what they what would Terrible happen. things, yeah. Right. And, um, and I bring this up because to some degree it seems like a lot of this sort of research is about figuring out, hey, we are living on this planet, mm-hmm. right? Um, we are affecting the planet in these X, Y, and Z ways. Yeah. And we're at the point now where, um, yeah, you mentioned the pine trees, that they would release their seeds in fire. Yeah. And normally that'd be part of a natural cycle where yeah, they'd be able sure. to do that. But perhaps for one reason or another, that cycle is disturbed. Mm-hmm. Like 99.9% chance it's our fault that yeah. it's being disturbed, <laughs> right? And um, to the point where now humans have to intervene to yeah. undo some of the human intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's kind of a funky thing like that. Yeah. yeah. And then we have to kind of piece together what's happening um, in nature, what we're doing to nature and our place in it um, so that we can better take care of nature. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Kind of that dilemma that we have. There's yeah. a... Yeah, so how do you how often do you think about something like that? Is, is that seems like a yeah, that's a great question. I mean, because yeah, you know, we sometimes we do have to start these fires, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. It's it's interesting because you know, on one hand, wildfires are cropping up more and more and more every year and building in frequency and intensity, and that's a bad thing. But you know, they're also a natural part of the planet you know they like i said some species rely on these fires you know in some cases they're they're good for certain areas um the problem is that it's almost it seems like it's going to become kind of a runaway thing in some ways um that they're going to build up too much um in the wrong places is the big thing so you know in northern california or you know last year with the big fires that really decimated places like paradise um you know that's an example of a wildfire that is in the wrong place you know and that we you know hopefully could have predicted maybe down the line we can predict these things coming um and yeah so yeah it's kind of a it's a tough question i think doing this sort of science that you do uh working out where these fires are from, what's burning, and does yeah. go a long way in trying to piece together all this information and how we're affecting yeah. the world and we live. The, yeah, the big thing that I'm looking at is more of how these fires are hurting us long after they're gone. So, you know, like I said in the beginning, long after these that last embers have cooled and the smoldering stopped, there's still all this junk from the smoke that's up in the air, you know, and that is the big thing that's having an impact on on the climate. And so for us, and, you know, it's easy to say, well, that's natural. That always happens, you know. But the problem becomes when now you have urban pollution that's coming in, that's stuff that's definitely ours, and that's mixing with that, and it turns it into a much nastier beast than it was to begin with, you know. Um, and that's the part that's doing a lot of damage that we're finding um, or have seen a little bit of and you know, that's kind of where I'm going with this is to kind of explore that more in depth, um, and see how it's truly affecting it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's strange, this 
planet that we live on you know everything is connected to everything else and so nature pushes it and then we push it back and then it kind of builds from there yeah I wasn't a conscious tie to Nazis, by the way. I was yeah. just trying to give an example. No, I wasn't accusing anything. No, yeah. just, just so we're clear. Again, yeah. now I'm, I might be taken out of context. Um, <laughs> just because that was also a case where, like, hey, like, that knowledge is saving lives today. Yeah. But yeah. how do we as people kind of deal with that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, our research is strange in that, you know, it's almost like we hope for wildfire some days, you know, um, so that we get good science and we can see it and then there's people on the ground that are like no i really hope the firefighters put it out and we're on the other side not saying we hope it but it's like oh the fire popped up that's really good for us because now we get a really nice fresh smoke plume that we get to look at and like i said it's like yeah how do you resolve people in, in some cases you know in some cases it's great because it's out in the middle of nowhere and there's nobody around and they were setting it on fire anyways and it's like great that's what we get to look at and that's the best case scenario you know we get a really big fire that they wanted to happen anyway and we're just there at the right time to look at it and then it's like yeah but there's also the times where somebody lost their farm or maybe lost like you know a, ta- a part of a town or something like that and we're up there sampling the smoke saying, oh, this is great data, but at what cost? You know what I mean? And so we try and just say, or the way I think about it is, you know, someday, you know, somebody might have lost a house or a barn and that's terrible. And I wish it never had happened. But hopefully maybe this research that comes from that fire can help save people much farther down the line, you know, and who are going to be breathing all this crap, you know, or not to get too grandiose, but maybe the planet in some way, you know, with the climate science, climate forcing part of this, you know. And it's certainly not like you guys are profiting off of this tragedy. No, for sure. No, 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 no. Certainly in benefit of something. Benefit. Yeah. I guess it's like, you know, at least it didn't all go to waste. You know, it was an all up in smoke for nothing, you know. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Not, not profiting in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, hmm, it's rough. Yeah. And it's not, not the only case in science where it's like that, where it's a yeah. lot of good information come out, but at the end, like, hold, hold on now though. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Hmm. Unexpected ethics yeah. of, of atmospheric chemistry. Yeah. So it seems you kind of came to this conclusion, uh, about how to deal with the research how long did it take you to get there? How to deal with it? Um, I think it, it took a little while after the first um, airborne experiment that we did, the the one last year, um, because that was one of the ones where we there was clearly a fire that had taken up a couple of um, structures. And um, I don't think they were houses, but they might have been. So I treated it the same way. Um, and we got some really nice data from it and we were really interested in seeing that the results of that fire. And that was the one where they, the people that were kind of running everything were like, all right, yeah, you got some really interesting stuff, but you can't talk, you can't really tweet about it. You can't be like, yeah, this was great because there are people living around that lost things to this fire, you know, and 
so we were trying to be very mindful of that when we were talking about what we're doing, but not to seem enthusiastic that this had happened. So that really got me thinking about it. And yeah, it took me, you know, a couple months to kind of come to terms with that and be like, yeah, this is terrible. And, but hopefully, like I said, it's not all for naught, you know, hopefully those people that lost things can know that in the end it's contributing to something much bigger and that will help them in the end, you know, and help other people in the end too. You know what I mean? Um, and thankfully none of the fires that we've studied, as far as I know, no lives were lost or anything like that. It was, it was just possessions, which is still terrible, but, um, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like we're out there freezing people, you know, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, to, to compare that, but yeah, comparing yeah. ourselves to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, certainly not starting any fires. Either. Yeah, no, 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 no. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not out there setting fires. No, <laughs> these were naturally occurring. Just yeah. so we're clear for the audience, these yeah. were naturally occurring, occurring fires, right? Yeah, that- and the ones that were started were in very controlled settings that were intentional. It wasn't like, you know, so and so started a fire on their farm and then it spread to all the farms nearby. You know, this was one field, you know, for the prescribed burns, it was like one field. That was great. It was one chunk of the forest that they intentionally set on fire and that was great and worked out well. Um, so yeah, yeah. We're not out there like starting fires in people's yeah. yards to, to get smoke for it. No, right. I knew that just so we're yeah, just clear. To- <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. Yeah. Cause what we can <laughs> That could be very problematic if, you know, yeah, it's if too easy it. to take an yeah. interview like this out of context, yeah. you know. Um, and that was the, these were fires that, that happened. Yeah, they happened. We happened to be there to get some great data for it that hopefully will benefit people down the line. Yeah. Um, aside from that, I imagine you do keep up with climate news. Yeah, I try to. Yeah, for sure. Like um, then it's, and I have to imagine that you know you understand that there are more fires in California than there used to be. Yeah, for sure. And we're yeah. transitioning away from the idea of a fire season to just a fire a year because they just happen all year round. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Well, number one, do you feel that? California can improve the situation. Hmm. Political forces aside. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I'm not sure from my perspective of a good way. I know there's a lot of excellent research being done about how the fires are starting and how they spread. There was just a study done by UCI people actually um, on using machine learning to actually kind of predict how big fires will grow and where they'll spread and all that good stuff. So that's really promising to see. Um, but from the climate and kind of smoke health, human health standpoint, um, I'm not really sure of a way yet that that's kind of hopefully what this research will lead to is what can we do to mitigate these effects of us breathing it in, you know, um, but first, in order to get to there, we need to understand what the effects are, you know. So does it turn out that there's way more ozone or way more benzene or way more something in the smoke coming into 
California getting stuck in the San Joaquin Valley that is going to be bad for people breathing it in. And so that's kind of what we need to get to first before from the air we can determine kind of what California or other people should do to help people out, you know. Um, so that's where we're at right now. Um, but as far as at the moment, what California can do, I'm not hundred percent sure, you know, but like I said, that's where, that's where we're headed to. So that's hopefully we'll have some answers soon. <laughs> yeah. True. Me oh, too. So. Oh, yeah. how did you get into this sort of research? Oh yeah. Great question for sure. So I, I want to say I got into it by accident, but I, that's not hundred percent true. Um, so I went to my, I did my undergrad at a really small liberal arts school, which was awesome. I loved it, but they only had a general chemistry program. There wasn't like specific discipline programs that you can get like at larger schools. So with that, I had no idea that the field of atmospheric chemistry existed. You know, I'm sure that I knew it could have imagined that it had existed, but I never was introduced to it at school. Um, so after my junior year or during my junior year, I guess I saw this um, program through NASA called the Student Airborne Research Program, shameless plug. Um, and it's an excellent program for undergraduates um, where you get to come out to California, work in Palmdale, for two weeks, fly aboard this research aircraft to call the DC-8 and, you know, work with NASA scientists and do all this really cool stuff. And then you go to Irvine for six weeks, do research. And then at the end, you get to present a project of your own creation to a field of, you know, NASA scientists and other scientists and people like that. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. What an opportunity. Um, so I applied and I was amazed that I actually got it and got in. So I go out and they're talking about all this atmospheric chemistry, atmospheric chemistry. And I was like, man, what is that? And slowly over the course of the program, or not slowly, I guess I got thrown into it. I, you know, they had these lectures and everything at the very beginning on what we're doing, why we're doing it, what atmospheric chemistry is, airborne science, all this, because most people had no idea. You know, there's like mathematicians there, there's physics guys, computer science people, you know, um, students that are there that are doing this and they had no idea either. And it was like, wow, this is really cool what people get to do for a living, you know? And it was there that I actually joined, um, Don Blake's, um, kind of research group within that program. And so I got to go to the lab, got to run samples, got to modify the chromatograms, you know, and modify it being not change the data, just to be clear, to draw baselines where they should be to get accurate data. Um, I just modify is kind of like a slang there for what we do. Um, so I wanted to clarify. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I got to work there. Don is awesome. He's the best boss ever. Um, so I had so much fun that I decided that that's what I wanted to do because it's kind of the best of every world in chemistry. You know, I get to do the lab stuff. I get to go out in the field. I get to fly on planes. I get to hang out with really cool people. Get to have Dawn as my boss because it's the best, you know. So that's kind of how I got into it. Is and so I applied to UCI my senior year. It's the only place I got in of all the places that I applied. So I was like, all right, my decision is made. And honestly, I'm happy with that. You know, it, having looked back, I would 
this is the best course of action for me. So that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, similarly, I uh, UCI was the only place I got accepted to, yeah. Yeah. which is why I came here. For better or for worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for better or for worse. Yeah. Um, I think it was fine. Um, yeah. Seems like you've done well. <laughs> I, I'd like to think so. Thank yeah. you. I'm, I'm, thank you for the vote of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. I. Hmm. It's really interesting to uh, see someone else um, get into a line of work and then kind of grapple with sort of the big problems. Not the yeah. scientific problems, but mm-hmm. the, um, also the scientific problems, but the, the, the sort of the the gravity of the work that's going on. Yeah, definitely. Right? Um, it's interesting how... Uh, thank you for sharing. Because I because uh, yeah. uh, my research, um, I kind of give tidbits of this in previous episodes, yeah. but I never have explicitly stated it, so okay. you guys get to hear it now. Nice. Um, I did uh, nuclear fuel recycling processes, right? So you take nuclear fuel, um, you melted, used nuclear fuel, and what you would do is... Well, because there's still 96% of it is still usable material, and it kind of has to be that way. You have to maintain very precise ratios yeah, and stuff gotta, in a reactor. Yeah, you got to get the, the poisons out, right? Is that, yeah, is yeah. that what it was? Yeah, okay. it's kind of the idea. So what you would do, you'd melt it down, um, throw some chemicals at it, pull out the uranium, and then that you could press back into new fuel, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of few intermediate steps involved, but yeah, that's the idea. Um, but I, I guess... Um, I don't know. I never... Kind of like you, yeah. uh, you said you maybe could have imagined that something like atmospheric chemistry could have existed. It's, yeah. yeah, if I really thought about it hard, yeah, that makes sense. And the field like that exists. The same, likewise, um, the field of solvent extraction, yeah. which would be you know taking a chemical to pull another chemical out of a chemical, like yeah. a, out of a, out of a junk, yeah. out of stuff, right? Um, yeah. I it's something I wouldn't have imagined working in. Yeah, I would have fallen it, into it. You know? Something like in chemistry, you could see it happening, but no one really explicitly tells you that yeah. that's a thing you can really do. Right, now like, you look yeah. at it, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. It'd be yeah, a big old yeah. field, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, certainly for me too, is um, working in nuclear energy now yeah. was problematic. Yeah. Right. Um, for sure. was... And like, you know, like, uh, and um, my heart was set on it. Mm-hmm. The lab was pretty great from yeah. what I've evaluated. Um, and I was doing computational work, which is, you know... Sitting in front of the computer is my thing. So, yeah, it's, um, that yeah. was my jam. That was all my jam. Yeah. Um, programming stuff to figure out data and things like that. Yeah. And, um, but, yeah, that was one of the things I kind of had to reckon with. Like, the, the, I mean, anything nuclear, the nuclear weapon came first. Everything yeah. else fell out of it. So, yeah. kind of, um, and, you know, policy people, whenever they talk about nuclear energy, they have a point there. Like, whenever you're doing nuclear anything... At the end of the day, you're supporting weapons somehow. Yeah. That's almost, that's like, that's just how it is and something yeah. I had to reckon with. So, yeah, I'm glad you um, <clears throat> shared that. Yeah, 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 for sure. How you dealt with it. I know I just read a book. Yeah. <laughs> got real sad about it. Like the, uh, the book about the Manhattan Project. I forget what oh, it was called. I sort of went through the history of it. And... Yeah, there's a book um, I was picking up. I, I didn't pick it up and buy it but i picked it up briefly and i forget the name of it but it's by neil degrasse tyson and it's on how kind of like everyday science and how that might play into the weapons field and military field and it's it i should have picked it up now that i think about it but it, it's interesting that that you mentioned that that there anything can pretty much be applied to 
the military in some way, shape, or form. And not that it's always bad necessarily. Some cases it's good, but yeah, it kind of brings in a whole new field of ethics depending on how you look at it. Right. And um, yeah, certainly a lot of the greatest discoveries came out of NASA, which came yeah. out of, you know, which was built for, you know, military applications. Yeah, launching big rockets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what it all boils down to at the end of the day, but... I guess that's kind of the sad reality of it. People will want to eat each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, then, you know, if you don't want to be eaten, then you got to you gotta get ready, I guess, yeah. to not have that happen. Got to take the first bite in some cases. But, yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, I feel like atmospheric chemistry doesn't tread too, fo- too much into that. I don't think it does. But, yeah, I can see grappling with that on the nuclear side of things for sure. So as you all listeners know, I ask bios from all the people I interview so they mm-hmm. can post it on the website and you guys can learn more about them. And I noticed something interesting. You, you take up pottery. You like making jars. I do. Yes. I am huge into pottery. And yeah. like knowing what you did, and I was like thinking to myself, so he worked with the jars of air and now he yeah. makes jars. Is there like a connection? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, the pottery came well before the atmospheric chemistry started. Um, so I started pottery in high school, my junior year of high school. Um, I took a class and fell in love. And then so I took like two more classes my senior year. Um, and then turns out that the really small liberal arts school that I went to had one of like the best pottery programs like ever not ever but a really amazing program um so um i was very fortunate in that i had a way to you know a, a nice start on a career path in chemistry that i loved but also had this amazing you know world at my fingertips of doing pottery you know kind of in my spare time i was president of the clay club the ceramics club so i could you know late at night when i'm tired of doing the last problem set for PCHEM, I could wander down to the the clay club or, you know, the pottery building and make some stuff and kind of, you know, catharsis, you know. And then um, really found a way to bring it all together when I started doing um, kind of like natural materials that I would gather and bring that into my pottery. And so it was kind of a world of science and chemistry of building these glazes and building these clay bodies that I could then use in the artistic form, you know, and make plates or bowls or mugs or anything out of. Um, and so that that's what kind of got me through college was doing that because it was, you know, it was a way to, to make take my mind off things and meditate, I guess. Um, yeah. Do you feel that because of your chemistry background and your knowledge that it added a new dimension to pottery oh yeah for sure um it's kind of like i feel like a reason it seems like a lot of chemists are also really into cooking you know is because um you kind of have a different perspective on it and not to say that i had a better perspective than any of the other people that i worked you know worked with doing clay um but it was it was really a unique perspective and one that um i was really happy and cherished you know happy to have um and i actually did a a kind of like an honors like senior thesis project on chemistry but it was in ceramics so there's when you're doing ceramics you can do um you can fire your pottery in a atmospheric kiln which was interesting because then i got an atmospheric chemistry um but you know it's kind of open to the air and you're dealing with really hot gases 
doing really cool things, really complex chemistry to the surface of the pots. And so in a lot of times you don't even have to glaze the pots, which is something you usually do to get that kind of glassy, shiny finish that makes them usable. Um, in the atmospheric kilns, you, it kind of develops on its own. And so you don't even have to glaze the pot before you put it in there. And so my thesis project was kind of looking at that process and a specific process called flashing that any potters listening will most likely know about um, if they've done any atmospheric firings, like wood firings or anything. Um, and so I was looking at that from a chemical perspective, but it was fun to kind of get out there and do the the artistic part and, you know, make a pot and throw it in there and, you know, make these little sample discs and put it in the wood firing and fire it and then take it up to the scanning electron microscope and kind of do some fun chemistry with it, you know, and look at it from there. But well, we even yeah. got to use an SCM too. I did. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's <laughs> it was, it was hard. Yeah. It was a little hard with the ceramics because they're an insulator. And so after a while, you know, they wash out. But um, yeah, for a short time, it was, <laughs> it was really cool. Looking That's at that. pretty cool. Do some x-ray fluorescence on it too, which is kind of fun. Didn't really give me anything, but, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. That reminds me now, um, when we were briefly chatting as I was setting up the, yeah. the studio, studio in air quotes here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, you mentioned that it was either going into liberal arts or going into chemistry. Yeah. Like, could you yeah. elaborate? Could you, yeah. Mind talking about that? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Yeah. Um, so that's a part I feel like a lot of my colleagues here might not, I, I don't really talk about very much anymore. I used to talk about it a lot, but now that I'm kind of set in my career path, well, definitely set in my career path at this point. Um, yeah. So in high school, I really grappled with um, and really grappled with what I wanted to do with my life because we had, you know, I really loved science and math and chemistry, but I also really loved art and doing anything art, specifically ceramics, but also kind of different 3D um, glass, um, sculpture, jewelry making, things like that. And I kind of had to like sit down with my parents and be like, hey, I really like art, but I also really like chemistry. And they're like, oh, well, you'll never and not to not to ding my parents they've been the you know obviously I love them to death they're the best supporters in the in the world um but they they kind of had to have that hard chat with me like hey you're gonna have a really hard time paying the bills with art you know unless you really make it big and not that they didn't believe in me but it was something to think about you know and so getting into college my first year of college same thing where I had this really great program of you know, pottery that also involved chemistry at my fingertips. But if I went down that path, I'm giving up everything in chemistry, you know, and science that I really loved. And so I made the hard choice of doing chemistry, which I'm really thankful I get to do. And I'm glad I did make that choice. But there's still a part of me that thinks, you know, where would I be if I had gone down the art path? You know, would I be super successful and showing and studios you know or would i be regretting that choice and maybe not have made it big you know big enough to pay the bills so but i'm very happy for what i've done and where i've gone and the people that i've met i think definitely made the right choice so happy for that and happy my parents pushed me to do that too yeah they're or not pushed me but advised me on yeah. that path yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no i, I get you yeah. um so then you did mention that you, I guess, yeah, you're set now. 
yeah. you're in a PhD program yeah. this year. You, it's you, hard. You've committed. <laughs> you've, 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 this is I've jumped hard in commitment. both first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I guess. And um, do, do those, do you wonder about it still then to this day or is that? Yeah. Every once in a while, hmm. think about it, you know, not, not in a serious way. Like, man, I should really just drop out and become an artist. But um, yeah, I mean, there's times of like, man, what if I did that? What, what would that be? Or where would I be right now? You know, would I still be at my parents' house, you know, hoping to make it big or, you know. So, yeah, yeah, there's times I think about it, but never in a, a way that I'm, like, going to act on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's something I can relate to pretty hard, yeah. actually. Yeah. Because um, I used to cook for a living Oh, before I did this. Very cool. Um, yeah, before I committed to science and yeah. jumped in both feed first into yeah. computational chemistry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and every time I watch a cooking show now, I'll think to myself, think about it. if I would have kept at it, it would have been 10 years now. Where yeah. would I be? Yeah. 10 years in that feeling, you know, in food. Yeah. Mm, nice. Yeah, yeah. That's something I think about. I look back at the people, you know, I, I still follow all my friends back there on Instagram, and I, th- and I see what they're doing, and I see what people are doing, and I'm like, man, if I just stayed in it, I would be a master potter by now. You know, I've... I've it's a thing, I swear. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah no, you know, agree. and man, what would I be doing? Yeah, so there's also that. a little bit of. Man, I had this, I had this girlfriend one time, and I remember I was sitting at her house, and she was a year ahead of me in math, back in like high school, and I remember I was sitting with her and her mom. She was working on this big math project that she was doing, and they're like, "Oh, Alex, what do you want to do?" And I was like, "Oh." might want to be a like a potter someday and they just laughed at me and i was like fuck you you know (laughs) like fuck you now i'm gonna be one just to do that but (laughs) i think this is also you know i think what i've done is also you know made me realize that i'm happy with what i do but yeah it's also a big fuck you to them but (laughs) (laughs) i I just didn't i didn't do it just out of spite i swear you know (laughs) but there is a little bit of it that's like yeah screw you but yeah, still think about it a little bit. Yeah, it's hard not to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially if you've invested a significant part of your life to like learning yeah. it and yeah. getting into it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. For sure. But it is glad, it is good to have you here. Thanks for uh, sitting down and chatting with me. Of course, yeah. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, Ted. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man.